Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 11. So turn to Daniel 11 in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Daniel chapter 11 on page 701. So turn there and follow along. Or you can, yeah, flip to it in your bulletin and print it out in there as well. You can follow along on the, the screen. We're going to work through it. Daniel 11 is one of the one of the more remarkable chapters in the Bible, I think. Um, it's, uh, it, it spells out in precise, I mean, in exact, precise detail, uh, a lot of events that are going to happen for several centuries after the date when it was written. So Daniel chapter 11 was written, uh, we're going to see in, in 536 B.C. And, uh, and yet it describes a lot of historical events in the Persian and Greek empires that take place, not in the 6th century when it was written, but also the 5th, 4th, 3rd, and 2nd uh, centuries. And so, I mean, you can literally read, like, you can, you can you know, get a book on, you can get a history book or, like, an encyclopedia article on uh, the Syrian wars uh, that we're going to look at it in detail this morning, but, uh, and kind of read uh, about the Syrian wars and read Daniel chapter 11, which is written before those uh, events took place, and just watch them line up almost uh, exactly. It's pretty remarkable. It's so specific and so correct that uh, secular liberal scholars uh, think that it had to have been written after uh, the events that it describes. Um, so that's the case. In which case, then, uh, it wasn't written by Daniel, which means that the book itself is not being truthful because it claims to have been written by a guy named Daniel. Uh, or, you believe that the Bible is inspired by God, Himself is sovereign over human history, it's inerrant and infallible, and therefore um, God can and did write about events that did not yet take place uh, before they happened. So it's remarkable. So we're gonna we're gonna read through it. Daniel eleven is remarkable for that reason. It's also like tough sledding. It's like not the easiest text to preach through. I think so. I mean, I said before jokingly that a lot of pastors preach through Daniel one through six and stop and never really touch on Daniel 7 through 12, which I think is true. And Daniel 11 is probably like the main reason why. It's just a, a strange, you know, uh, text to read. It's not easy to interpret. And unless you're like super well-versed in ancient Middle Eastern history, uh, you might not know what a lot of the uh, events that it's describing are referring to or what it's about. And so it's kind of a weird text. Um, but, you know, we're committed to expositional preaching, and so it's here, so we're going to, to work our way through it and just consider what it means and what it's, uh, you know, how it applies to our lives today. So uh, it's a really long text, like all of the like all the chapters in Daniel. We're not going to read it up top. We're just going to pray and then just kind of work our way through it, reading it as we, as we go. So I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then we'll tackle it together. Lord Jesus, we... Uh, thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. We pray and we ask for your blessing on our time together over these next few minutes. I pray, Lord, that you would um, quiet our hearts and minds. I pray that you would give us clarity and understanding so that we can hear your word and know your word and respond rightly to your word for your glory. In Jesus' name that we pray. So, Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, it says, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, uh, to figure out who's talking and, and what they're referring to, we're going to jump back to Daniel chapter 10, where we saw uh, that Daniel was receiving uh, this word from an angel. Uh, so the same one who in Daniel chapter 10 said, uh, you know, when you were uh, fasting, and praying, um, I, like Daniel had been fasting and praying for three weeks, and this angel came to him and says, hey, three weeks ago when you started fasting and praying, I started to come to you, and I was kind of held back by this uh, demonic being, and I eventually kind of overcame him or got around him, and now I made it to you. So that same angel who said that, gave that revelation to Daniel, is still speaking here in chapter 11, and you will still be speaking in chapter 12. So that's who it was. And that, uh, you know, we kind of dated that to the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, which was 536 B. 
see. So that's who's speaking and kind of what's, what's going on. And he says, you know, that I, uh, I stood up to confirm Darius the Mede, which again kind of reiterates what he uh, kind of uh, implied last week, which was that uh, this angel who's speaking to Daniel had some sort of hand in confirming the reign of uh, the, the king. So, so he's kind of implying that that every nation, every empire, every kingdom, every king or leader, that there are spiritual forces kind of at work behind the scenes, ensuring that those things all happen according to God's will and, and plan. For two says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. So again, for the rest of the chapter, we're just going to read through these kind of enigmatic phrases and try to uh, you know understand what they are likely referring to from history. So three kings that are going to arise in Persia after uh, King Darius um, are most likely uh, King Cambyses, who reigned from 530 to 522, King Smyrtus, who reigned in 522, and then King Darius, uh, who reigned from 522 to 586. So those are probably the three kings that are in view there. And then the fourth one shall be richer than all of them. In all likelihood, that is referring to the Persian king Xerxes, who was um, far and away kind of the, the richest and most powerful of the, the Persian kings. You've probably seen him, you know, um, uh, like in, in stories or movies or something like that. He's probably the most famous of, of them. In fact, uh, the book of Esther, um, there's a king named Ahasuerus uh, in that uh, book, and that's probably the same guy. It's probably King Xerxes that's being referred to here. So, uh, three three Persian kings, then a fourth one who's richer than all of them. Uh, and then when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece, and then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he will. So, uh, four Persian kings, uh, after which there is uh, a Greek king that's going to kind of conquer them and kind of establish this great uh, dominion, this great kingdom which uh, by all accounts appears to be Alexander the Great, who, uh, you know, came into power in uh, 336 BC, super powerful king, verse 4, and as soon as he has arisen, Alexander the Great, his kingdom shall be broken and divided into the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. This is why we think this is Alexander the Great, because that's exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. He reigned for 13 years, 336 B.C. to 323 B.C., and when he died, he had no male heir, or at least no uh, male no male children that could be confirmed to be uh, his, his heir. And so there were four generals that were kind of immediately underneath him that were all vying to take over his kingdom, uh, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Now, um, I think we have a, a map, uh, Zeke. If we want to scroll down below all of these verses, we can kind of look at these uh, four um, areas. But they were all kind of divvying up uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom. Um, and so you've got, I don't want to get, get the names right here. So you've got um, Cassander is reigning in kind of modern day Greece. So that's kind of this green area up here. Uh, Lysimachus is in Thrace and Asia Minor, which is this kind of orange area. Those two we're not really going to see much more about after just this kind of initial mention. But the next two, uh, Seleucus, uh, is in Mesopotamia and Persia, so this big kind of yellow area. And then Ptolemy is down in Egypt, this kind of blue area. And those are going to be the two kind of kingdoms, the two dynasties, the two empires that we're going to see pretty much for the rest of the chapter. There's going to be a lot of mentioning of the king of the north and the king of the south. King of the north is referring to Mesopotamia. King of the south is referring to Egypt. And the reason why those are kind of get the most attention is because they are zoomed in right around uh, Israel and Jerusalem. So uh, they were the ones who, whichever one of those was more powerful, is going to be the one that affects uh, Israel and the people of God in Israel more. And so those are, we're going to zoom in on the conflicts and the relationships between uh, the Persians and the Egyptians, or those two Greek dynasties, um, in what's called the Syrian Wars. According to Wikipedia, um, the Syrian Wars were a series of six wars between the Seleucid Empire, that's the yellow, and the Ptolemaic Empire, that's the blue, uh, successor states to Alexander the Great's empire during the third and second centuries. And so 
Uh, so we kind of saw a mention of Alexander the Great. We saw a mention of the, the kind of dividing his kingdom up into four. And now we're going to zoom in on those uh, two. And in verse five, it says, uh, the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So we're going to start out with the, the king of the north is uh, Elucid. Uh, up in Persia, the king of the south is Ptolemy down in Egypt. Um, and so the king of the south here is referring to Ptolemy. The king of the, or the, the prince who should be stronger than he, uh, scholars are, are kind of, kind of have different, different theories on him, but a lot of them think that that's actually Seleucid, the king of the north, who for a, for a time was kind of, uh, you know, was kind of down, was, was, you know, in the custody of, uh, of Ptolemy down in the, the south. But eventually he, amassed more power and kind of made his way back up to uh, to the Persian Empire. So we're kind of starting out kind of the, the south and the north. You got the first two kings there. Verse six, after some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So that uh, literally happened. Now we are in kind of the next generation. We've got um, in Egypt, we've got Ptolemy II. Um, and in the north in Persia, we've got Antiochus II. Those are the two kind of kings that are in view here. And uh, Ptolemy II wants to make peace with Antiochus II. He wants Egypt to make peace with Persia. And he, in order to make that happen, he sends his daughter to Antiochus II to be his wife. The catch is Antiochus was already married. So we got some palace intrigue. We got some, some drama. So... Uh, um, Ptolemy II has a daughter named Bernice. He sends Bernice to Persia to be married to Antiochus II. Antiochus II already has a wife named Laodice, and Laodice is not excited about Bernice coming in and kind of, you know, wrecking their, their whole situation. So she killed her. She killed Bernice, and she killed Antiochus. So it's kind of double whammy. She poisoned them both, um, uh, which kind of fulfills the, the, the next part of the verse, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. So the king of the south, Ptolemy II, shall send his daughter Bernice uh, to the king of the north, that's Antiochus II, but she, Bernice, shall not retain it, she'll die. She'll die, and he and his arm shall not endure. So uh, Antiochus II is also going to die, poisoned by Laodice. But she shall be given up in her attendance. He who fathered her, that's probably a reference to Ptolemy II down in Egypt, who died also around this same time, and he who supported uh, in those, those times. So uh, verse 7, and a branch from her roots shall arise in his place. Now we're probably talking back down in Egypt about Ptolemy III, who is Bernice's brother. So Ptolemy II sent Bernice to Persia to kind of be a treaty. She was killed. So now Ptolemy III is the new king in Egypt, and he's mad that his sister got killed. So he uh, goes, uh, and, and well, the rest of verse 7, he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and prevail. That had, in, in 246 BC, Ptolemy III invaded Syria to avenge the death of his sister, Bernice. Verse 8, he shall carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. That all happened. Ptolemy III takes a bunch of stuff from Syria with him back down to Egypt. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the north, right? Whenever you, you know, whenever the if kids are fighting, you say, everyone stop fighting. And they're fighting of our toy. Whoever has the toy is like, yeah, let's stop fighting. Let's totally, I'll keep the toy. This this skirmish is now over. That's it, right? He, he took all this stuff from Egypt, or from, from Persia, goes down to Egypt and says, all right, we're, we're all done. We're not going to fight anymore. Verse 9, but then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So now we're looking at Seleucus II, who is the current king of the north. And he comes down to attack Egypt and get all this stuff back, but was unsuccessful. Verse 10, he his sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So Seleucus II dies in 226 BC. His two sons, Antiochus III and Seleucus III. And so they keep right on fighting against the Ptolemies in Egypt just like their dad did. Verse 11, the king of the south moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. So the two kids from the Persia have been poking the bear in Egypt for long enough that eventually uh, the king, who is now Ptolemy IV, 
uh, gets mad and retaliates and attacks. Uh, at this, by the time he attacks uh, Seleucus the third is now dead, and so now it's just Antiochus the third up in Persia. And he shall raise a great multitude. We're still in verse eleven, and but it shall be given into his hand. So Ptolemy the fourth defeats Antiochus the third. Verse twelve. Uh, when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So Ptolemy the fourth wins the battle. Antiochus the third loses a lot of men in the battle, but I mean, that's kind of their last big. That's that's uh, you know their last big victory for a while, and then they start to lose power. Their kingdom is on the decline. Verse 13, for the king of the north shall raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So now Antiochus III, who has just lost the Ptolemy IV, uh, is, is waiting and kind of plotting and thinking, when can I go back down and kind of exact vengeance for the military defeat that I've just suffered? Fifteen years later, Ptolemy IV dies, succeeded by Ptolemy V, uh, and as soon as that happens, Antiochus III of the Persian senses weakness, blood in the water. So he's like, now that there's death and a transition, I'm going to go in and attack him, attack him while they're weak. Verse 14, in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So we're around 200 B.C. by now. We've got Antiochus III coming down to attack Ptolemy the fifth, and when it says uh, those among your own people shall lift themselves in order to fulfill the vision, uh, that is re referring to the fact that the people of Israel, by this point, were actually rooting for uh, Antiochus III in Persia to overcome Ptolemy in Egypt because Egypt had been uh, kind of heavy-handed with them. They were taxing them very oppressively and things like that. And so the, the Israelites are saying, we don't want these Ptolemies, these Egyptians, to continue exerting power over us. We actually see Antiochus III from Persia as something of a deliverer, something of a redeemer figure that's going to come in and overthrow the people who are oppressing us and persecuting us. So when Antiochus attacks Ptolemy, they're like, cheering him on, way to go, make this happen. Verse 15, then the king of the north, that's Antiochus III, shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. That's the, that's the Battle of Paneum, which took place in 200 B.C. Google it has its own Wikipedia page. I read it this week. Um, in fact, yeah, most of these people that I mentioned and most of the defense and most of the battles have their own, yeah, like you can fact check them, look, look on the, look, you know, look them up online and kind of read up about them a little bit. So, King of the north throws up siege work against the well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. So Antiochus III defeats the Egyptian armies, takes control of Palestine. And again, the Jewish people are like, way to go. We've been wanting that transfer of power because we don't want to be under the Egyptians. They're too cruel. We would rather be under the Persians. This is great. Verse 17, uh, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. So uh, Antiochus III is uh, kind of the, the big dog on the, on the block, and he uh, tries to kind of negotiate a, peace, a peaceful you know, arrangement with him and with uh, Egypt. And so he actually does the same thing as we saw before. He sends his daughter to Egypt uh, to, for that king to marry so that they can have uh, peace. In fact, the daughter's name is Cleopatra, which is not the maybe not the famous Cleopatra that, that you might be familiar with, but it's one of her, like, uh, you know, someone somewhere in that family line a few generations uh, prior. Matthias III sends Cleopatra to marry Ptolemy V. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. So but here's the thing, is like, Antiochus III, when he sent his daughter, um, when he should give him the daughter of William, he, the, the idea was, I'm going to send Cleopatra to go marry Ptolemy, but then really she's going to work, she's going to be a double agent. She's going to kind of give me power and influence over the region of Egypt. I'll expand my influence. 
Um, but then as soon as Cleopatra gets down there and marries Ptolemy V, she kind of he switches teams. He ghosts her father and is like, I'm more loyal to my new husband than I am to my father who sent me here to kind of be a double agent uh, for him, which is why it says, but it shall not be to his advantage. So Antiochus III sends Cleopatra, but it kind of doesn't work out. Verse 18, afterward, he shall, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. So Antiochus has captured Egypt. He's trying to exert more influence over Egypt, but he also wants to kind of head uh, kind of north and, and west, kind of um, you know over toward Greece and Rome. But those efforts to expand his power, his territory in that direction fail because the Greeks and the Romans defeat him, and so he ends up going back to Syria, not with a bunch of spoils of war like they were expecting to welcome him back, but with empty pockets because he got beaten up and shaken down and had his lunch money taken by the Greeks and the Romans. And in fact, he has a big fat IOU because part of the deal, if you lose a battle in those days, was you were now have to pay tribute. Like now and kind of into perpetuity, that's kind of the, the, the arrangement. We don't kill you and you give us all of your money until we say otherwise. So... Antiochus III shows back up in Syria with no spoils of war, but with, a, with an obligation to pay a bunch of money to the Romans. And uh, verse 19 says, Then he shall turn his face back to the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall, and he shall not be found. Because they killed him. When he came back, and having lost the war, they're like, we sent you out on our behalf to go bring us back stuff, not to bring us back a debt that we have to pay. So they, so they killed him. And now Antiochus III, we're now in about 187 BC. Antiochus III is, is succeeded by his son Seleucus IV, verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send back an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, who in a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. So Seleucus IV has a predicament on its hands. He's like, great. Uh, I'm now the king of this Persian dynasty, which is great, except I owe a ton of money to kind of the Greeks and the Romans from a battle that we just lost, and I have no money to pay them. So he raises taxes on everyone. And he's like, hey, we're, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tax you guys a lot of money so that we can pay our war debts. But now Rome doesn't like him because he's not paying his tribute that he's supposed to pay. His own people don't like him because he's raising taxes on them so that he can pay the tribute that he's obligated to pay. So you would think that this guy, Seleucus IV, is either going to die uh, in anger, meaning like an angry mob of his own people that kill him because they don't want him charging them taxes, or in battle because Rome attacks them because they're not paying their tribute. But it says he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle, which is true, because Seleucus IV was actually killed by his tax collector. The guy that he sent to go collect taxes ends up poisoning him, and he dies. Not from an angry mob. Not from a battle, he just is, is assassin. Which gives you to verse 21. Now we're going to meet a guy that we're already a little bit familiar with. In this place, Telarad, a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. If you come in without warning and being the kingdom by flattery, this is uh, Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy that we kind of talked about a couple of weeks ago in Daniel chapter 8. Uh, we're in all, he's very likely the little horn that we see referenced in Daniel chapter 8. His majesty had not been given to him because Antiochus was not the rightful heir of the throne in Persia at the time. That was a guy. Uh, that was Seleucus' son named Demetrius. But Antiochus Epiphany, Epiphany bribes a bunch of officials and kind of bullies you know, leverages other ones of them to kind of get them to make him of, of, of kind of the Persian dynasty, the, the, the dynasty. Verse 22, army shall be utterly swept away before him and bring even the prince and from the time that an alliance is made, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. This verse is a little bit tricky. This is, you know, 20, 22 and 23. There's two kind of historical events that it could be referring to. We're not sure exactly what we want. Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe that, that, he will, that people will be broken for him, including the Prince of the Covenant. One is uh, that the Prince of the Covenant might be referring to 
um, Ptolemy the Sixth, now the king down in Egypt. So this guy, um, part of his reputation as the leader, he forged a lot of alliances with a lot of other surrounding uh, regions, which might make him be referred to as the Prince of the Covenant, the Prince of the Line, with other, uh, making alliances, making covenants. And Ptolemy the Sixth made an alliance, made a covenant with Antiochus Epiphanes. After he did, he went and made another covenant, another alliance with Rome. Uh, and eventually, uh, his alliance with Rome was stronger, and they kind of forced Antiochus Epiphanes out of Egypt. So uh, the prince of the covenant might be that guy, uh, Ptolemy VI down in Egypt. Another possibility is that the prince of the covenant refers to the high priest of Israel, uh, whose name was Onias III. So this is kind of the state of the union of the high priesthood in Israel at the time and why we're in the intertestamental period, right? Between the Old Testament and New Testament, and the reason why it's so bad and so difficult, you can kind of this kind of is, is illustrative a little bit. Onias the Third is the high priest of Israel. Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't like him because Antiochus Epiphanes is very committed to Greek culture, Greek gods, Greek religion. He doesn't like that Israel is not. He wants to Hellenize Israel. He wants to Greekize, Greeceize. Israel. He wants them to worship the Greek gods. He wants them to worship himself, Antiochus, as kind of the representative of the god. And Onias is, doesn't want to do that. He wants to be faithful to God and stay faithful to the Old Testament. For Antiochus, uh, there's tension between Onias and Antiochus. Uh, one of uh, Onias's, Onias has a brother named Jason, and Jason goes to Antiochus and says, hey, he, he bribes him. He offers him a big bribe. He says, "If you, I'll, I'll give you this money, and uh, if you make me the high priest of Israel, I will work to integrate Greek gods into the life and worship of the people of, of Israel." So he takes this huge gift, which is probably from the tithes and offerings of the people of Israel, gives it to Antiochus Epiphanes, and Antiochus fires Onias and puts Jason in as the, as the high priest. And in fact, then later he fires him. And puts another guy in the high priesthood named Menelaus, who offers him an even bigger, better bribe. So things are not things are not great in Israel in terms of faithfulness to God. So this this about the prince of the covenant is one of those two things. It's either the, the guy down in Egypt who's taking alliances or it's the high priest of Israel. Not sure. It could probably be either one. But verse 24, without warning, he, Antiochus Epiphanes, shall come into the richest parts of the province and shall do what neither his father's nor father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. That was part of Antiochus's reputation, was that he was ruthless and cruel and vicious with people that he didn't like, but he was also almost like a, you know, like a mob boss or something. He was like generous with people around him to ingratiate them to him. So he would kind of expand his borders into uh, the Ptolemaic uh, kingdom down in Egypt, and as he would take things and plunder things, he would give those, give the plunder out to his soldiers that were helping him. So things seem to be going well, but that only lasts for a time, because eventually Ptolemy VI and his alliance with Rome is going to kind of come due, and they're going to push Antiochus Epiphanes out of Egypt, which we're going to see uh, in verse 25. Uh, he shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. It's probably referring to uh, when one of Ptolemy the sixth, uh, he had like an like you know his council of advisors. At one point, they were like, "Yeah, go find Antiochus Epiphanes. He'll definitely win. It's going to go well. Let's go do it." And he does, and then he just gets gets you know beaten down. In fact, actually, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes takes Ptolemy the sixth. He beats him and takes him as his prisoner. So now up in uh, Syria, you've got Antiochus Epiphanes with Ptolemy the sixth as his prisoner. Makes way for a new king down in Egypt, Ptolemy the eighth, and. And so that's where we see in verse 27, as for the two kings, that's referring to Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy VI, who is his prisoner, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. 
So while they're in custody, they start to, oh, while Antiochus has Ptolemy VI in custody, they start to conspire together. And they start to say, all right, we want to take over Egypt. And of course, Ptolemy is thinking, yeah, I was the king of it, and you took, like, you took me as prisoner. Of course, I want to. And, and in fact, they're both, um, it says that they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail for the end to be at the appointed time. So Antiochus and Ptolemy VI are conspiring together to take over Egypt, to take the kingdom of Egypt back from, Anti from Ptolemy VIII. But they're both kind of double-crossing each other because Antiochus is thinking, I want to use you to take over to, to defeat your brother Ptolemy VIII. But then I'm just going to be the king of everything, Syria and Egypt all combined. Of course, Ptolemy is thinking, I want to use you to take over, and then I'm going to re-solidify my reign and my throne over over Egypt. So they're both lying at each other, both lying to each other. They both want to use one another to get what they want. In verse 28, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work and return, or he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. So, that'll, that kind of plan that they were hatching of Antiochus is going to use Ptolemy to take over. Well, eventually, Ptolemy VI ended up going back with his brother Ptolemy VIII. Ptolemy VIII was like, why are, you, why are you partnering up with Antiochus against me? We're brothers. Come be my partner. We'll rule Egypt together, and we will defeat Antiochus. So he does. Ptolemy VI kind of leaves Antiochus and kind of joins forces with Ptolemy VIII, and then they both call on Rome, who they had kind of had this, you know, uh, this kind of newfound relationship that was coming into fruition. So now it's basically both Ptolemies in Egypt versus and Rome, who's kind of with them, all against Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's why it says that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes shall come into the south, but it's not going to be as it was before. Like, he's not going to have all of the strength and forces and influence that he had. He's going to be basically all alone. And it says, um, for the, verse 30, for the ships of Titum, that's Rome, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So, when the Ptolemies in Egypt enlisted the help of Rome and their ships arrived, they basically uh, lead Antiochus Epiphanes and said, go home or we're... And they literally they said, go home or we're going to kill you. In fact, there's a story that literally a Roman general, like a schoolyard bully thing, he walked up to Antiochus Epiphanes, took a sword, and drew a circle around him in the sand or in the earth or whatever and said, you're in the circle. Don't leave it. If you leave this circle, I'll kill you. He said, he said think long and hard about wh where you want to go when you leave the circle I just drew around you. If you leave the circle and come advance further into Egypt or Rome, we're going to kill you, and Rome is going to come and conquer Syria. Or if you leave the circle, tail between your legs, and run back home to Syria and never show your face here again, We'll let you live. We'll let things be for now. So, like, Rome kind of came in and they started kind of, the, the powers have shifted a little bit. And now Antiochus, for the first time in a long time, is getting, he's getting bullied. And he doesn't like it, which is why it says uh, he shall be afraid of withdrawal and turn back and be enraged. He's furious that he now is getting fucked by Egypt and Rome. So he's going to be enraged, but... You know, if you ever get bullied, if you're a bully yourself and you get bullied by someone bigger, then chances are you're going to look for someone smaller and bully them, which is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes does. He, on his way back home to Syria from this confrontation with Rome and Egypt, he kind of comes by way of Jerusalem, by way of Israel. He's enraged, and now he's going to take action against the Holy Covenant. That's the people of God. That's the nation of Israel. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the covenant, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. So on his way back to Syria from Egypt, Antiochus Epiphanes comes through Israel, comes through Jerusalem, and finds basically that they are, there's an insurrection going on. Because remember the whole thing with the high priests before with uh, like Onias and Jason. And like, so th there was this like pressure from Antiochus Epiphanes, the Hellenized and Greek eyes, the nation of Israel, and they didn't like it. They didn't want to do it. And so there were these like faithful Jewish people that were like, we're not going to worship the gods of Greece. 
Uh, and so we, if we have to, we are going to revolt. And they did in what's called the Maccabean Revolt, which is what is commemorated today still by the Jewish holiday Hanukkah. And so that revolt is starting to happen. The, the, uh, the beginnings of that revolt are starting to happen when Antiochus comes through Israel. He's mad that he just got beaten by Rome. So he says, someone shut these guys. Like, someone tell these guys that they are, uh, they work for me. Like, the, you know, and so he slaughtered tons and tons of people in the nation of Israel on his way back. Uh, 80,000 people, men, women, children, forces shall appear. Um, he shall take away the regular burnt offerings. He shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. We've mentioned this before, but one of the things that Antiochus did in this rage that he was in was goes into the temple, kind of vandalizes it. Uh, he kills a pig in the temple, which is unclean for, for, people, for the, uh, people in ancient Israel. Spreads its blood and guts all over the temple to kind of defile it on purpose. He erects a temple to the god of Zeus in the temple. Uh, he erects a, an altar to the god of Zeus in the temple to the god of, of Israel. And that's what they call the abomination that makes desolate, right? Abomination, wicked thing that makes desolate, right? That kind of leaves destruction and misery and, and you know, nothing in its, its wake. Verse 32, the Antiochus Epiphany shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know the God shall stand and take action. And Antiochus, his leadership style, like I said, was the small stick. It was carrot and stick. It was if you don't worship and me, if you do worship me, I'll give you, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you money. I'll give you power. I'll give you, you know, I'll, I'll give you, you know, I have to give it to you. So some people were seduced by that, and they violated the covenant. They worshiped God other than the God of Israel. Some knew their God, and they stood firm, and they took action, which is probably referring to um, the God who was a priest named Matthias and his sons, who were the leader of the Maccabean revolt. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by stupid plain by captivity and wonder. Meaning that there's going to be godly people who are, um, they are going to be faithful to God. They're not going to uh, worship the Greek gods. They're not going to make epiphanies, but they're probably going to get killed. They're probably going to become murderers. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. So they they might have people stand up for them from uh, nation of Israel or outside of it. But, uh, and many shall do flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be purified, made white, until the end, for it still awaits the time. So basically, the angel is telling Daniel that uh, when Antiochus tries to seduce people to worship other gods, some people are going to do it. People are not. Of the ones that are not, you're going to be murdered and killed and persecuted. But even then, it's going to be a net gain. They're going to be refined, purified, made white. Right? The um, father said the blood of is the seed of the church. Meaning that, like, as you know, the the world's thinking would say, as the church is persecuted, it gets weaker and eventually dies. But in fact, as the church is persecuted, it gets stronger. The faith of those who are being persecuted. Road, the Holy Spirit gives them grace to persevere under trials and under fire. And frankly, a lot of the nominal followers of God kind of walk out and they say, I'll go, I'll go worship. Uh, is the strong, resolute people of God who have been refined, purified, and, and made white. Verse 36. Verse 36 is where it gets a little weird. So, right, like, um, Everything up until this point, up until verse 33, it's almost very clearly referring to historical figures. You can kind of Google Syrian War, you can Google the different Ptolemies and the different Seleucids and Antiochus and kind of read about them and kind of see how they fit in. But for verse 36 and following, it doesn't follow exactly. It's weird because everything's exactly up until this point, so which kind of leads a lot of theologians to think that from verse 36 on, Seems to kind of be talking about Antiochus, 
Because a lot of what it says about him matches them, but some of it doesn't. Some theologians say talking about another guy hasn't seen because it doesn't really match anyone, at least that I could tell in, in history. And so um, some theologians think that a prefiguring of a future figure uh, called the Antichrist, who is the New Testament, the man of lawlessness, all, uh, or the Antichrist, that's John, the beast, that's also John in the book of Revelation. So some theologians think those figures in the New Testament seem to maybe be what I hear in verse 36 is, is referring to. So Antiochus, it's talking kind of about Antiochus, but kind of about another guy that's going to come near the end of the age before Jesus comes back, which is which really awesome. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things. He shall accomplish for what his decree shall be done. Antiochus did that a lot to to a degree, but I mean he did he did worship God. He did worship no gods, like this one maybe is implied. He worshipped some gods. Verse thirty-seven: He shall pay no attention to the god of his fathers, the god of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god. He shall magnify himself above. So Antiochus kind of did that, but again he also worshipped Jews. So it's kind of a. And when it says he wanted to pay attention to the God of his fathers, well, Zeus was one of the gods of his father. Um, he, Antiochus did uh, ignore a lot of the gods that his fathers and his ancestors considered very important, but the one that he really zoomed in on and, and kind of liked a lot was Zeus, which was a part of their pantheon. So that you know, seems to be kind of a, a, you know, referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, kind of not. Verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know, and he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. So again, um, you know, if that's referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, it's hard to kind of reconcile it a little bit. If it's referring to some other guy, a future Antichrist, then maybe it's implying that that person is going to amass a great deal of military might and, and power. Verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers of many and shall divide the land for our price. Again, Antiochus kind of did that. He bribed and flattered people. If it's referring to a future figure called the Antichrist, it's probably implying that he's going to use some of those same tactics, bribery, kind of you know, flatter people and you know, be very smooth and compelling and calculated and amass uh, a lot of power. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with many ships, and he shall come into the country that shall overflow and pass through. Again, that kind of tracks with Antiochus Epiphanes. He was kind of always uh, at war with, you know, he's always attacking or being attacked by, um, you know, the, the Ptolemies down in Egypt. So it seems like it could, could track with him. Verse 41, he shall come into the glorious land. Antiochus did that. And tens of thousands shall fall. That happened. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. Tough to know how that applies to Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Again, not, not sure how to, you know, he was, he was at war with Egypt constantly. So that could, could line up. Verse 43, he shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Kushites shall follow his train. Antiochus did plunder Egypt and take a lot of their resources during his raids and invasions. So that could be. Verse, 40, verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. So that's kind of weird because... Antiochus was the king of the north. So uh, most of his battles were with people to his west, like, you know, Greece and Rome, and south in Egypt. But it wasn't to the east and the north. So I'm not sure, you know, how that refers to Antiochus Epiphanes. If it's referring to some future Antichrist figure, then it might be referring to some sort of massive world war that is stirred up by him. 
even be referring to, you know, straight east of, of the Syrian Empire is, you know, north as Russia and China could be referring to, to that. I'm not sure. Verse 45, and he shall pitch his tents, his palatial tents, between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. That doesn't seem to be about Antiochus Epiphanes because that's not how he died. Antiochus Epiphanes, from what we can tell about his death, uh, he died in a military skirmish uh, in Persia. He did not die while kind of pitching his tent and standing his ground somewhere between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. There's a very specific geographical area where this figure, whoever this is, died. Antiochus Epiphanes didn't die there. So a lot of things line up with Antiochus Epiphanes from 36 to 45. A lot of things don't. So maybe it's kind of about him, kind of not about him. I don't know, tough to, tough to say for sure. If talking about Antichrist figure, then probably referring to how he may or may not make this uh, big you know, military stand just west, you know, between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea and then be there. I don't know. It could be symbolic. It could be referring to something that we don't know what it is. Stuff. But that's Daniel 11. Like I said, it's a weird one. It's a weird chapter that, uh, you know, is interesting. And especially being kind of together everything that's being referred to in it. It's fa- it's fascinating. A super kind of in-depth look at uh, the nation of Israel and unfold over the next several centuries after Daniel's life. Persia, Greece, the Ptolemaic Kingdom, the Seleucid Empire, and the Syrian Wars that would take place between those two kind of dynasties, culminating in the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecute the people of God with great intensity. He may or may not be a prefiguring or a foreshadowing of some future figure, maybe called the Antichrist, He's going to appear at the end of the time just before Jesus returned. Daniel 11. Now, what does it matter? Why should a Christian today read Daniel 11? Aside from just it's in the Bible, so it's it's profitable uh, for us to, to read and to, to be instructed by, right? Why should we read Daniel 11? What can we, how can Daniel 11 apply to our lives outside of just helping us know Bible trivia? I would submit that the reason why Daniel 11 matters, probably not going to be a big surprise, but the same reason why all of the rest of the book of Daniel, or the reason why the book of the, by the chapter of Daniel 11 matters is because it shows us conclusively and categorically, that God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over the past, present, future. He knows the end from the beginning. He is in control of all of human history. We don't worship a God who does not know the future. We don't worship a God who uh, can at best make an educated guess about what is going to happen in the future. We worship a God who knows the future who controls the future, and who holds the future in his hands. And one of the implications of God being sovereign over all things and knowing the future is that he is also sovereign over suffering and persecution. Most of this, most of chapter 11, was being read by Israelites in the intertestamental period while these things were happening to them. They were being kicked around like a kickball between these two kind of empires that were on either side. They were essentially the the bargaining chip that either one, you know, at any given moment, one of those two empires was exploiting them and oppressing them as they were fighting against one another. And so Daniel 11 is about the people of God remaining faithful as they are being persecuted and as they are suffering. And it was written to them so that they could read it and be strengthened and be encouraged so that they could persevere through suffering and persecution, right? Remember verse 32, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Daniel 11 was written about people who are going to do that. And it was written to those very people who were going to be called to do that so that they could be strengthened in their spirit 
so that they could do that. And so Daniel 11 should have a similar um, effect on us as the people of God, right? It should galvanize and strengthen us to endure and persevere even through suffering and even through persecution, right? When following Jesus is difficult, Daniel 11 is a reminder that God is sovereign. When being a disciple of Jesus is costly or when it involves self-denial, Daniel 11 is a reminder that God is sovereign. It's here to remind us that God is in control of all of human history. And if that's true, if, if it's true that God is sovereign over all of human history, then it's also true that God is sovereign over your life, what you experience. God is sovereign over the suffering that you experience in your life. God has sovereignly allowed for it to happen. God wants good for you, and he wants good to come out of it since it has happened. And the main way that God brings good out of the suffering in our lives is through the gospel, through Jesus who came to live the perfect life that we were called to live but failed to do, right? Jesus who died on the cross, suffering and experiencing the death that we deserve uh, in our place to satisfy the wrath of God so that we do not have to earn God's favor. We do not have to merit the love of God. We can receive the love of God, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has, has done. So Daniel 11 reminds us to trust in the sovereignty of God and to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus because God is sovereign over, over all things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for that spirit, that theological truth, that spiritual reality that you are sovereign over all things. You're sovereign over our lives. You're sovereign over our relationships. You're sovereign over our families. You know the end from the beginning. You are the one who is sovereignly bringing about the end that you desire from the beginning. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you that your knowledge of the future is so right and true and specific and detail-oriented that you could write a chapter like this centuries before anything in it ever happened. And we thank you for what your sovereignty means for us as your people, that we can trust you and hold fast to you even through suffering. And we pray that you would give us grace to do that together as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.